Sometimes Christmas isn't exactly the happy time for everybody. And sometimes, uh, you know, you get what you want. Sometimes you don't get what you want. And things don't turn out exactly as you planned. And that's just, I think, the way life is sometimes. That uh, Christmas is a, is a time of uh, expectation and anticipation. And sometimes it's realized and sometimes it isn't. My Christmas... Uh, as a kid, my Christmas started in about October, and uh, we, got, we got in the mail what's called these wish books. Now, for those of you who are younger, that's kind of like uh, internet shopping on paper. It's <laughs> the only way I can describe it. It was not quite as instant as that, and we would get at least two wish books, and as my family got more affluent, we got four wish books. We got Sears and Pennies and Montgomery Ward, there's a blast from the past, and Spiegel, I remember that one, and uh, the front part of the catalog was always adult uh, clothes and stuff, underwear, socks, uh, but the back part of the catalog was always the part that, you know, the kids loved, I just loved the back part, because it was, it was toys and games and everything a kid could ever want, and uh, drool over was in the back part, and so we would, you know, I would take that catalog, and I would memorize the thing. And uh, almost literally, I know where the pages were, and I would, I would just dream of all the stuff. And you read the little descriptions, it makes it all sound so exciting. You know, it's just that you can't be without this toy, and, or whatever it was. And I would circle in ink, and sometimes if I really wanted it, I would circle the whole description and dog ear the page. And, you know, over time, those things really, I just about wore them out. There was no possible way that my parents could ever not know what I wanted. It was there in living color, lists and all. Now, so Christmas came, and uh, you know what happened. Now, you're, gonna, you're thinking to yourself, oh, the poor guy, he made all these lists, and he didn't get what he wanted. That explains a lot about him, you know. <laughs> but that's not true. For, for one thing, I have a birthday in, in December as well, and, that, and for the first 13 years of my life, I was an only child. So I pretty well cleaned up. By the time my birthday, Christmas Eve at both sets of grandparents, and Christmas Day at my parents, my list within reason was pretty well delivered to me. It was fantastic. But then there comes what Relevant Magazine calls the after Christmas thud. It's over. And the toys weren't quite as described. They didn't provide hours of fun, you know, maybe minutes of fun. And they didn't, you know, they may have uh, didn't work exactly as planned or they used too many batteries up and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was just not what I expected. And then the books I got, I read them, put them on the shelf, and that was it. Maybe a game or two I got, uh, nobody wanted to play anyway. So by February, by Valentine's Day, it's pretty much all put on the shelf with all the rest of the stuff. And it was uh, not till October till I, you know, started this whole process again. Sometimes the anticipation of something is greater than the reality when it actually occurs. And I think many times at Christmas that's exactly what happens to us. But that, isn't that the story of life? Sometimes we anticipate and we anticipate these things, and sometimes they happen and sometimes they don't, but it's often not as we expected. Maybe you've been surprised by Christmas. Maybe you've been surprised by life in general. It reminds me of this story. This is the best I got, folks, so be ready. A lady making Christmas cookies. Uh, knock on her door. A poor man comes to the door and says, I uh, need some 
extra money to buy Christmas for my family. Do you have any odd jobs that you could do? And she said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. She said, I've got uh, these cans of Christmas green paint in the back, and, and I would like for someone to paint the porch out back. He said, I'm a good painter. I could do that. She said, okay, go, go to it. We'll settle up when you're done. So she got busy with her cooking and kind of didn't worry about it anymore. And after a while, you know, appropriate amount of time, he knocked on the back door and said, well, I'm done. And she knew he was done because he was covered in Christmas green paint. She said, well, let's go back. Let me check out your job and I'll settle up with you. And he said, I got one thing. He says, I'm really confused. He said, that's not a porch out back. That's a Mercedes. That's the best I can do. But isn't that like Christmas sometimes? We expect a green porch, and we get a green Mercedes. It's a letdown. What we anticipate doesn't quite happen. Now, this morning we want to deal with the last part of the Christmas story, which is sometimes the part that's neglected just because we get tired of the Christmas story by now, and we just put it all away in the box. But as you see over here in this perfectly biblical uh, demonstration of what really happened in our nativity, which is really a mashup of the whole thing, by the way. You know, the, uh, we have everything right there in the story. We got the angel fluttering, I'm doubtful if the angel fluttered over the manger. Uh, I think the angel occurred at one point, as you know in the story. Then we've got the shepherds who came, which is perfectly fine. We've got animals. We don't know anything about animals. We just think they're there. And then we get the wise men showing up, which they didn't show up then. And you all know that. You're all biblical scholars. But the manger scene kind of is this summary of every story that happens at Christmas time, and it reminds us of what happened. Well, the wise men part of the story, sometimes by the time we get to that part, we get a little bit weary of the story, and we just put them back in the box. But I want us to talk about, just shortly, uh, the wise men and the response of Herod this morning and see what we can learn about handling life's surprises, handling things when the Jesus we encounter isn't the Jesus we expect. Let's start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Matthew. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as would everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. These two responses, Herod and the wise men, remind us of the kinds of responses that occur when we encounter the Jesus that we don't expect and we can learn from. Why was Herod so anxious and disturbed by this news. 
this news of this prophesied king of the Jews. Well, Mark Dennison's statement he recently made in, a, in an article kind of sets the stage for this. He says, Jesus is in the business of disturbing the one seated on his throne. Jesus is in the business of disturbing the one seated on his throne. And you see, Herod was not the rightful heir to the throne of David. He had usurped that power and by all sorts of treacherous means gained the throne and he kept it by all sorts of violent and cunning and just plain mean things. But he was not the rightful heir to the throne of David. He had every right to be disturbed and anxious about his standing. This king of the Jews, in his opinion, was going to come and turn everything upside down. Jesus was then, and he continues to be, a disturbing presence to anyone who snatches his power and sits on his throne. Anyone. Now, we don't necessarily see that today, but it's still there. Paul talks about this when he says, There will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We don't see that much in our culture now. We don't get that idea that this is the king. This is our master and savior. We're reminded sometimes in church when we sing songs, but we often don't remember it. So if this thought of Jesus disturbs you, as it disturbs many in our culture, if his teachings disturb you, as it disturbs most of our world, it may be that the wrong person is sitting on his throne. One man said this, some of us serve a God named us. So here's a warning. If you're a person of influence today, and most everyone in here is in some way or another, a leader of some sort, you may be a boss who has employees, you may be a manager, uh, you may work with people's assets, you make decisions that affect other people, you could be a teacher, a coach, an administrator, more importantly a parent or grandparent, you are in a position of influence. Use that position wisely as given to you by the one who sits on the throne. When you are in charge, when you are responsible for other people and can tell people what to do, be very careful with that power because it is loaned to you by God. It is not yours. You are not on the throne. And you will be held responsible for the way you treat other people. As in Herod's case, it was a terrible end. If you lead as Jesus would want you to lead, it will go well with you. But if you don't, Jesus will be a disturbing presence. He may be a presence of judgment in your life. So Walk carefully, those of you who sit in a seat of influence. Now, while uh, Herod resisted and rejected and uh, refused this Messiah, the wise men recognized him. Now, we, we don't need to talk much more about Herod because all of us don't have much trouble with refusing and rejecting. That's, that's our default setting. But the wise men come and see this unexpected, unpredictable king... Don't you suppose they were disappointed? This is not what they were expecting. They were expecting royalty and pomp and circumstance. And what did they get? They got an average ordinary house, blue-collar family, and a little boy. Not what they expected. And yet, does it seem that they were disappointed? 
I don't read it. In fact, we can learn by their response. They went with their plan. They went ahead and did exactly what they had planned to do with a, a, a king and royalty. So evidently, even in spite of the evidence, they chose a correct response when they saw this humble king. And this is, these three responses I see in the text are very easy for you. I mean, it's not rocket science. You can do this yourself. But let me remind you, you know this. What was the first thing they did? They bowed down and worshiped him. Now, that's kind of a, a double punch there because the main word in the Bible used for the word uh, worship is bow down, to prostrate oneself in front of, a, of a, a king or a deity. Now, that is so unfamiliar to North Americans. We don't bow down to anybody or anything. But yet, these wise men, in, faith, in the face of this humble little boy, managed to, to put themselves on their faces in front of him. There's another word in the Bible also used for that, and that word is like to kiss to word, or to kiss the hand or ring, as the king would extend the hand and you bow. That is, you know, those are the kinds of behaviors we just don't do to anybody. And yet, the wise men were willing to extend this honor to this young child. It would have been very easy for them to say, I think we have the wrong address. Let's go, let's go recalculate. But they didn't. Someone once said, a wonderful gift may not be wrapped as you expect. This gift was not wrapped as they expected. And yet, they worshipped him instead. The very humble circumstances of Jesus would give me a clue as to how his kingdom is supposed to operate in humility and service. You know what Paul said in Philippians? He said that uh, Jesus did not think of himself being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit. He gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. And when he was living as a man, he humbled himself and was fully obedient to God, even when that caused his death, death on a cross. This is the kind of king the wise men worshipped. A king who would serve his subjects. One who would completely identify and understand his people. One who would be willing to die in their place. This king turns the world upside down. He is disturbing. He does the unpredictable and the unexpected. And so they worshipped. Now, everybody worships something. I think we are hardwired to worship. That's a part of how God made us. We all worship. How do we know? Louis Giglio, in his book, The Air I Brief, says this about worship. Let me read it so I don't get it wrong. So how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne, and whatever or whomever is on that throne is what you worship. The trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speak louder than our words. In the end, our worship is more about what we do than what we say. Now, let me meddle just a little bit. I don't see North Americans worshiping like this much. I see us coming to church sort of like this. The worship guy asks us to stand. Uh, Got to stand. Uh, you know, if you clap your hand, that's, you know. There are some traditions that are a little more expressive than that. But uh, I, I see worship in Bloomington, though. I saw it a couple weeks ago at the Assembly Hall. 
middle of the second half. I don't want to step on your toes. You've been there. You know what happens. They come out with the flags. All of a sudden, the big IU flag comes out. 17,000 ridiculous adults jump up and down, clap. And this big IU flag can hardly be held, but this big strong guy gets up there and they start doing this. And what do they do? They form a circle around it and start bowing. I get that. I'm a sports fan too. But it kind of breaks my heart a little bit. You mean that you could come to a public assembly of worship and act like a sour pickle and you could come in the presence of God and go, (sighs) I just think there's something wrong with that picture. You just take that for what it's worth. Can't God be pleased when we worship everything but Him? I don't think so. Figure out what you need to do to put that spark in your heart that when you come together in our worshiping assembly, you can worship God just like those people who bow down to that flag. I think God would be pleased. Now, you know, it probably hasn't happened yet, and maybe it has happened in your life, but there will come a time when Jesus will disappoint you. He will not do what you expect him to do. He's not a genie. And what you've prayed for, you won't get. And you pray and pray, and you want this. You want him to use his power, and he won't use it. And all you'll get silence and suffering, and you won't feel like worshiping him. But do what the wise men did. When you encounter the unexpected Jesus, worship him anyway. That was the second thing. Give. That's easy. No, not easy. Again, I don't think they expected to see this. And, you know, it would have been awfully easy. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are pretty expensive stuff. It would have been a lot easier for them just to give him a Walmart gift card and leave. You know, that would have been a lot better for them. They could have kept the gold and frankincense and myrrh for something else. But they didn't do it. They went ahead with the plan. You see, because giving our best is a sign of honor and worship. And that's what they did. They gave their best. Now, here's the other thing about this gift. They got nothing back. You know, perhaps they expected to go to this court and be recognized with thinking, maybe they'll get some, you know, nice parting gifts from the king because they've come to pay homage. They didn't get a thing. They didn't even get a letter of recommendation. They didn't get written up in the Far Eastern Times about their visit. Nothing. This Humble family, this ordinary family had nothing to give back to them, and yet they still gave, which is a picture of the kingdom of God, the way Jesus operates in generosity is give without expecting something in return. I'm afraid many of us, you know, there's always this, there are givers and takers. Well, I don't think anybody in this room are takers. Most of you are good people who like to give, but I think they're givers and expectors. And I think many of us have a problem with that. We give expecting somebody to know, expecting somebody to appreciate, expecting somebody to give us something back in return. That's our problem. But the wise men gave knowing that nothing would be given back. Look at the circumstances they're in. A couple weeks ago, my wife Wanda and I traveled to Romania to see some friends there. We've been many times. And uh, our friend Rob and Becky back there know about this, our friend Pastor Viorel, uh, who works with homeless elderly in, in northwestern Romania, just got this idea that somebody needed to do something for homeless people in Romania, and he just did it. And he started one place, and he started up two different cities where he tries to care for these people. And really, if you go to the first place, it's kind of not much better than chicken coop in some ways, is it, Rob? It's just pretty 
you know, remote and just, but it's better than sleeping in a, in a drain pipe. And, and, and these, these homeless people are not, these elderly people are not cared for and some of them are disabled and they just wait to die. So he starts up this other place and, and our friend Kim Jackson who works with Remember the Children decided she wanted to help him uh, make some more room for the homeless elderly. And, and so she asked Pastor Vero what, what would it take? And he said, $10,000 could build me another little spot here in my land for, for people. And was it August or September, sometime in there, she got the idea that she would raise $10,000 to build some more space for these homeless elderly people. And so over Facebook, she was able in two weeks to raise $10,000. And in October when they went, she, she gave Pastor Virel $10,000. I think he was kind of speechless. But before they left, he'd started on the work. And by the time she got back and we got back in December, that place had already been built. And here it is. Now, it doesn't look like much to you, but it's clean. It's warm. And we were able to visit people in each of those rooms, two or three people in that room. Many of these people are near death. They will at least be able to die without suffering anymore. And Pastor Virel, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a saint. Now, here's the thing. He asked, okay... Knowing North Americans as he does, uh, well, where do we put the plaque and what do we put on it? Because, you know, Americans, you know, we want our name on the buildings and our seats and in memory of, we want all that. And, and, and Kim and, and Andy Baker, uh, director of uh, Remember the Children, we don't want any plaque. But Pastor Vieira wanted a plaque. So they said, well, just, it's to the glory of God. Look what they put. Glory wing. That's what happens when you're generous. You give glory to God. And that's all you could expect. Well, thirdly, obey. Look what happened. In a dream, they are told to go a different way. So counter to the instructions of the king, King Herod, they go back a different way. This is dangerous. Following God's direction... Living a life Jesus wants you to live can be dangerous and disturbing, and yet they go the other way. They followed uh, a path that could have led them to destruction. Now, it's easy to be a fair-weather fan of Jesus. Almost everybody is. But when he calls us to do something we don't want to do, that's another thing altogether. That often means doing difficult things and going to difficult places and saying things that we don't want to say. And being the kind of people we don't want to be, yet he calls us to do these kinds of things as a part of the kingdom of God. How often do you ignore Jesus? And I ignore Jesus when he calls us to do something. He calls us to love everybody and we can't even love our own family. He calls us to obey him, but the choices we make in our lifestyle are not any different than our happy pagans who live next door. He calls us to be leaders and managers who are different than the rest of the world, and yet we use the same techniques to get to the top, lying and fudging the truth a little bit and stepping on everybody to get to the top of the ladder. And yet Jesus calls us to a different kind of obedience and life. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount. Don't become angry. Settle differences quickly. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. All of these actions are so abnormal to the time of Jesus, and they're just unheard of in our time. I talked to a group of uh, business people one time, and they said, we can't live out the Sermon on the Mount in our workplace. We can't do it. We can't get ahead that way. But Jesus calls us to obey, to turn the world upside down. 
Obedience is pretty hard. Remember, Jesus is in the business of disturbing the one seated on his throne. And obedience is our ultimate demonstration of our love for him. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what obedience is all about. So as we wind up today, uh, just three applications of each of the three words. Worship. Worship is both a noun and a verb. Worship is a place we go, as we all, you know, and it's something we do. Now, uh, sometimes people kind of say, eh, worship, yeah, I can worship any place. And you've heard that, you know, I can worship at the beach. I can wor-. Well, there is something about the power and the importance of gathering together that the Bible writers encourage us to do. Do not forsake the assembly. That's us. There's something about getting together at the first day of the week that is powerful for you. It is for your good. Yet, as you've heard Tom say, over the years, regular church attendance has been defined as almost maybe half the time now. Because we're all so busy with everything else on the weekend, we can't squeeze in church more than a couple times a month. Now, you understand what I'm trying to say. If you want to honor God, if you want to worship, make it a plan for 2013 to show up more to worship Him. I mean, how hard is it to show up? That's your first thing. Secondly, you don't just show up on a Sunday and think it's all done. Every day we must make time to make space for God in our lives or we soon forget who he is and what he's done for us. How can you make space for God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? And it's not going to be the same for everyone. Somebody wants to get up early in the morning. Somebody wants to do something before they go to bed. It doesn't matter. But where are you going to make space where you stop and say, I need to recalibrate and I need to focus on the things of God and the direction that Jesus wants to take me in my life. You have to resolve to do it or it won't get done. That's a part of your worship. Secondly, give. If you take some time every day to think about the generosity of God, it will change the way you live. Most of us focus on what we don't have and what's going wrong, but if you would stop to think about all of those things in ways that God is generous to you, it will change your heart. I am always amazed how our friends in Romania as we visit have nothing, and yet they seem so much more joyful than we do. There's more than one kind of poverty. Spiritual poverty is not being able to appreciate God for what he's done. And that's what we've got. We are a land of people in spiritual poverty. But it's not just enough to think about it. You need to do something about it. Recently, you all know about this tragedy in Newtown. And Ann Curry started this uh, Twitter campaign about 20 acts of kindness in honor of the children murdered. Well, it expanded to 26 acts of kindness because of uh, the, the, the teachers that were killed. And she challenged people to do 26 acts of kindness in memory of this tragedy. Look at this up here. Here's something from the Twitter feed uh, picture. In honor of the lives lost in Newtown, Merry Christmas, you are number seven of 26. Please pay it forward. <sighs> this is a great idea. And a lot of people who don't follow Jesus are doing this. But it sort of breaks my heart because we ought to be in this business all the time. Here's my challenge. I don't think I can do it, but here's my challenge. It makes $5 million sound easy. Can you do 365 acts of kindness next year? 
if we would really do that, we could change Bloomington. Simple as that. We could change the world, probably. If we would do 365, actually one person said, I'm going to do all 365 in one day. I said, good luck with that. That's not the idea. Over time, these acts of kindness, as we live out the life of Jesus, can make such a difference in our world. And so I challenge you. Real quick, finally, obey. You know, we learn to obey by listening to God's Word, reading it, feeding ourselves, making a plan of how we can understand what God wants for us. All of you have heard that before. You just need to do it. Make some time to learn what God would say and read His book and come to church and listen and just dig in as much as you can. But there's this other part that we all know too. It's, is there's some place in your heart, deep down, that you're resisting God. And you're saying, anything but that. I'll do anything you ask me, but I won't do that. I'll, I'll be anything, but I won't be that. I, I'm just naturally grumpy, so leave that one out. I'm just naturally critical, so leave that one out. There's some place that you resist. I can't do that one. Now, you know that's true of you because some of you are nodding your head. God's Spirit has already shown you where the point of obedience is. So here's your challenge. Go with that. Don't fight it. Go a different direction. Now, if you don't know what that point of obedience is, if you're married, your spouse will tell you. <laughs> your kids will tell you. If you're a worker, you're, if you're a boss, your, co- your co-workers will tell you. If you really want to know where your point of obedience is, somebody will tell you if you're brave enough to ask them, but you probably already know. My challenge to you is take that point where you are like Herod and you resist God's gift. You resist the change, and you work on that with God's grace and His help. And if you, if you need help, get a partner and say, I'm working on it. Pray for me. Write me a note. Whatever it takes, that's a challenge that I have for you. The story reminds us that a wonderful gift comes often wrapped in an unexpected package. Following Jesus is not a membership in a club. It is a lifestyle. It is a change. It is actually turning our world upside down. But maybe it's not turning our world upside down. Maybe it's turning it right side up the way God intended for us to live. So here's the bottom line. When you get a gift, you can either open it or you can just look at it. You can resist the gift like Herod did. You can reject the gift. Or like the wise men, you can open this gift and see what unexpected things lie inside. Adventures that you would never dream of. Beyond what you can ask or imagine can happen if you open the gift. But that's your choice. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He has no battering rams. He will never ram it into your life. You must open the gift. And that is my challenge for you this morning. If you've not opened the gift, open it. If you've opened it, but you're just peeking inside a little bit, open it all the way up and take it out and live the way Jesus intended for you to live.